Welcome to the Two Journeys Bible Study Podcast. This podcast is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode 49 in our Acts Bible Study Podcast. This episode is entitled, Paul in Malta and Rome, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 28, verses 1 through 16. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses that we're looking at today? Well, in today's text, we're going to see Paul delivered safely to Rome, uh, as the hymn writer put it, through many dangers, toils, and snares. And uh, the last podcast, we uh, studied the exciting and harrowing tale of the hurricane and the shipwreck on Malta. Now, in Acts 28, Paul finally arrives at Rome, having been protected and delivered by Providence on Malta, the island he was at just before getting to Rome. We see evidence of the supernatural work of God in Paul's life, uh, first with a poisonous snake that bit him, but he didn't die, and then with some healings, uh, first of Publius's uh, father and then of many others uh, that were in the island. And so, again, uh, we see overarching the, the big picture story in the book of Acts is the movement of the gospel from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth by the power of God through the Holy Spirit. So we're going to see that today. Let me go ahead and read verses 1 through 16 in Acts chapter 28. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, A viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Puteoli. There, we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Andy, what does Luke tell us about the reception that Paul and the others received on the island of Malta? So they're on this uh, significant island of Malta. It's a very historic island. There's lots of uh, military history concerning Malta. Um, And uh, I find it a fascinating uh, study. Now, these islanders, the people of Malta, it says, showed them unusual kindness. 
And so we see evidence of what we would call common grace. You know, people, though they are sinners, still can do good deeds to others. It uh, doesn't mean they don't need the gospel. Um, but it just, I think, some evidence of the basic kindness and goodness that's in the unsullied human heart. Um, we see the evidence of this. Just because people are sinners doesn't mean they can't do good deeds good works. And also I see this as evidence again of the providence of God and how God cared for them. They must have been incredibly exhausted, um, hungry, uh, weary, perhaps a little discouraged, bedraggled, you know, soaking wet. Uh, they had swum from a shipwreck uh, just offshore to the beach. And so it was uh, very kind of the uh, Maltese people to care for them as they did. What was Paul doing to help, and what does the incident of the viper teach us about providence and human nature? So here's Paul. He's a great man, uh, the greatest man on earth uh, in the church, um, great leader, and and but he's a Christ-like servant. Nothing's beneath him. Hmm. Uh, as Jesus washed the disciples' feet and said, I've given you an example uh, that you should do as I've done for you, that example of servanthood. There's no task that's beneath me. So uh, here's Paul, and he's clearly the, the kind of leader of the entourage. He's the one that spoke words of encouragement that people follow, the centurion. He has the centurion's ear and all that. And yet he knows what they need is a fire to get warm, and he's out there collecting firewood. And so he's working hard. So it's just an example of humble servanthood. Um, but while that happens, a viper, uh, which was resting inside the, the wood that Paul was collecting, fastened itself on Paul's hand. It bit him. And uh, the islanders recognized very much the snake and what was going to happen. They fully expected Paul to swell up and die, but he didn't. And so what ends up happening is they're reading the signs and they make comments about it. And so those comments are worth looking at. How might we see this situation as the same thing, but in reverse from what happened in Lystra in Acts 14, 8 through 20? So um, I think both of it, in both cases, these pagans um, believe in incarnations. They believe in many gods and goddesses and that the gods and goddesses can take human form. Um, they also are looking for signs and omens and evidences of things going on. And so they're evaluating Paul based on what they see. Now, um, in, in Lystra, Paul and uh, Barnabas did miracles and the people uh, looked on them as, as two gods that had come down in human, uh, human form. Uh, but then later, uh, under the influence of some wicked Jewish unbelievers who hated Paul and Barnabas and the gospel, they won the people over and uh, stoned Paul and left him for dead. So he went from being a god to being a criminal. In this case, it's the opposite journey. Uh, when they see the snake fastened on Paul, they think he must be a criminal and justice, maybe the goddess of justice or something like that, has not permitted him to live. Yeah, he escaped the storm, but justice is hunting him down. Mm. Look at that. The serpent has bit him and he'll be dead within minutes. But nothing happened. Um, Paul just shook the snake off into the fire and continued collecting firewood, I guess. It's just amazing. And so they're observing and watching, kind of like scientists. They're, they're, they're kind of observing this thing. And it's like, oh, then they change their mind and think that Paul must be a god. 
So neither of their conclusions was proper. They uh, did not see it the way they should have. And it was supernatural. I think it does remind me of the end of the Gospel of Mark, uh, where uh, it talks about poisonous snakes uh, biting them and they will, uh, they will not die. Um, so there's a lot of questions about the text at the end of Mark, but this is at least some evidence that that kind of thing did happen to the followers of Christ. Andy, I wonder if we could circle back and elaborate just a little bit more what view of justice or providence the Maltese voice here in this situation. Sure. So I think it's similar to the book of Job where people look at good or bad events and they think that there is a divine purpose in them. They're, they do believe in some kind of providence. So they think that events show truth or reality. And in this particular case, they show uh, the wickedness of this individual. Um, so in, in the text, justice um, tends to be capitalized. And I think the idea is that this may well be um, a goddess of justice that's hunting him down like an avenger and using current events, using the snake, to kill him. And so they, they have a very kind of rudimentary or pagan view of providence, um, mm -hmm. but it's faulty. Things aren't so simple. You know, that's one thing we learned from the book of Job. Things are not always what they appear. And so I think uh, we see that type of theology at work here. Yeah, they seem to have this this one-to-one -one correlation in their mind or this law of retribution that if mm -hmm. you do something bad, something bad happens. Mm -hmm. If you did something good, then you wouldn't have gotten bitten by a snake. But clearly, like you mentioned in the book of Job, we don't always see that one-to-one -one correlation. It is it is true from time to time. You know, the, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. Um, but if you had been standing at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ and had that kind of rudimentary mm -hmm. theology, you would have gotten it wrong. You would not have seen properly what was going on there. Hmm. You would have thought this man was a great criminal um, and worthy of being rejected by his people. Instead, you were looking at the only perfect and holy man there's ever been doing the greatest act of love and of kindness that there has ever been. So we don't interpret things properly. And I think that's what makes it so difficult for us to read providential events as proof of right or wrong standing with God. We look at situations of people's lives and we make judgments that really aren't ours to make based on just circumstances that we can observe. Right. Now, I, I, as I wrote in my book on heaven, The Glory Now Revealed, in heaven, everything will be crystal clear. We'll be able to see God's intentionality in all of his actions. In the meantime, things are very confusing. You can have very wicked men dying peacefully in their beds, surrounded by loving family and by prosperity. Mm and you would come up with the wrong conclusion. Um, and so things are very hard to interpret in this world. There are general tendencies, and I would say the number one book on general tendencies is the book of Proverbs. You know, there are general tendencies. If you roll a stone, it's gonna roll back on you. Um, and different things like that. Modern day pagans in our culture call it karma. You know, stuff, bad stuff happens when you do bad stuff to other people. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, the hole you dig, you're gonna fall in it. That's what they would call karma. We don't believe in karma. We believe in providence, but we also believe providence is pretty hard to track sometimes. As I think Romans 11 makes it clear, um, it says, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor um, that God's ways cannot be traced out or tracked out. That's an interesting uh, phrase in Romans 11. It's it's like you can't track him. You think about, you know, those mountain men and, and they were excellent trackers and they could follow caribou or some, or they could follow a man just by footprints or, or evidences on the ground. You can't trace out what God is doing. He's very, very difficult to follow. Mm. 
I think that also leads us to some of the problems with judging harshly because of suffering or well because of success. Even as recently as yesterday, we were talking about our spiritual eyesight and how it is increasingly clearer throughout this life as we grow in Christ-likeness, but also that it's still, like 1 Corinthians 13 says, seeing through a glass darkly. We don't yet fully understand all that God is doing. Yeah, yeah that's true. I mean, I think they're just tendencies. If you live a moral Christian life, um, and you don't um, overindulge in good things God does want you to partake in, and you don't indulge in at all in wicked things that God forbids, you probably, in general, will be healthier. You know, um, but that's not always true yeah. because we know godly people get cancer, they get other diseases, their bodies waste away. Doesn't mean that God is displeased with them. Or the opposite, that just because somebody wins the Mr. Universe con contest and is the greatest physique on earth, that he is the godliest man either. That's not generally true, I would think. <laughs> so after having discussed in detail the challenges that we can face in evaluating good or bad things as evidence of right or wrong in someone's life, I'm going to ask you an evaluative question. Why do you think God allowed this viper to bite Paul? Yeah, I think um, just and, – and we also need to ask the additional question because there's so many things that happen in the life of Paul and the life of Jesus that are not recorded. So why did the Holy Spirit want us to know that the viper attached itself to Paul mm. and then nothing happened? And I think all the signs and wonders in the Gospels and in the book of Acts are done by God to make the way for people to hear the message. Now, we don't have actually in Acts 28 any clear indication – of a warm reception given to the message or even the message being preached. We have to imagine that Paul preached clearly, but as I read these words, we don't, we don't see any evidence of Paul proclaiming the verbal gospel. We do see him doing some healings. Um, but can you imagine Paul being there three months and not preaching the gospel? Mm. I can't. So I would say the reason for the viper and the reason for Publius and the sickness, the dysentery, the fever, and then the many other islanders that came to be healed was to make a way for the gospel, uh, that the gospel will be validated. How did the hospitality of Publius and the healing ministry of Paul advance the cause of the gospel? Well, um, as I just mentioned uh, a moment ago, we don't see the actual gospel being preached, but Paul is the messenger, the primary messenger of the gospel in the Gentile world. Any help given to him is, is beneficial. So I think it goes back to that cup of cold water uh, doctrine that Jesus gave when he initially sent out his apostles two by two. That's the beginning of the proclamation ministry of the church. The apostles sent out two by two, and he said in Acts 10, if anyone gives you even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, meaning his apostles, they will never lose their reward. And so any physical material help given to a messenger of the gospel um, is beneficial to the spread of the gospel. So again, Paul and his entourage were weary and wet and tired and hungry and, and their bodies were restored by Publius and by this time. Um, also, this is an example as we have in Acts 16 with Lydia the dealer in purple cloth and they went and stayed at her mansion. 
And here Publius, I'm sure, had a very nice home there in Malta, being the chief official, Roman official on the island. I think Paul was very well cared for. So this is an example in Philippians 4 where Paul says, I know what it is to have plenty and I know what it is to have nothing. All right, I know how to feast and I know how to have literally nothing to eat. Well, when did he feast? Well, those would be two occasions. At Lydia's house, I'm sure he ate and slept very well. And at Publius' home also, he was greatly honored, it says in the text. They, they showed him great honor, and that must have included, you know, change of clothes, a uh, comfortable place to sleep, and plenty of food. And so it's it's really beautiful to see how God does provide that. Uh, it's not why we live, but it, it just shows the kindness of God. And whether it's the protection of Paul or the healing that was provided, I think of Hebrews 2 where it talks about God testifying to the truthfulness of the gospel through signs and wonders and various miracles by distribution of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It's just a powerful picture of, though we don't have it recorded, these signs typically accompanying as a testimony to the truthfulness of the message that's being proclaimed. Amen. Now, what does your translation say on verse 9 with the other healings? Paul healed Publius's father of fever and dysentery. What does verse 9 say in your translation? It says, When this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. The rest of them. What does that mean? What do you get out of that, Wes? <laughs> well, we've talked about it as we've even walked through the Gospel of Mark here on Sundays, the vastness of Jesus' healing ministry. Yeah. It seems like when they would bring all of the sick from a locale, they were all healed. So it yeah. seems like the rest of the sick could even be the rest of the people who were ailing on this island. It's incredible. And I actually think this is unique in the book of Acts. Mm. Generally, the healings are one at a time, a paralyzed guy who has faith and he says, rise and walk, you know, or tells him to stand up. Got that, that uh, beggar at the temple gate called beautiful. You got these one-offs. Um, I think the handkerchief, this seemed to be there are some more general healings, but not whole populations like in the time of Jesus. That's why I put Jesus as the greatest miracle worker of all time, and still he is. But this seems to be more like in Matthew chapter 4, the huge populations, mm. Judea, you know, all the people from that area came and he healed them all. Um, that's one of those summary statements that Matthew gives us. Mark gives us a similar one, you know, just everybody gets healed. We get the same thing here. It's pretty mm. remarkable. It is amazing. Andy, before we move on to Paul's arrival in Rome, why is a good reputation among unbelievers important for the advance of the gospel? Well, as best we can, uh, obviously, Paul from time to time had a very bad reputation. Uh, if you saw Paul and Silas being stripped and stretched out for beating in Philippi, you would think that they were bad men. You, you wouldn't know anything about him. You just say, what's going on? I don't know. Two Jews are getting beaten. You know, what's the deal? You know, you just think they must have committed a crime. Um, so there are some times he is absolutely dishonored, uh, stripped of honor. But in this case, it's the opposite. He is greatly honored and helped. Now, Paul knows all of it's temporary. Everything on earth is temporary. He knows that they can love you one day and hate you the next. Um, but the fact is, uh, as we've mentioned, as with the miracles, and that was the cause of the honor, um, the miracles put Paul in a very honored position. The point is that the gospel will be held in honor, mm. you know, and ultimately that God would be honored as in the Lord's prayer, hallowed be your name. May your name be held in honor. Um, it's the same thing that he, he, he asked for prayer in Thessalonians, that the word of God may be spread, may spread rapidly and be held in honor. And so it's not so much that the messengers in and of themselves are held in honor. That's not as important as the message they bring being held in honor. 
In verses 11 through 16, we've come to the end of this long arc of the story of the book of Acts. Uh, We finally have Paul arriving at his intended destination. What reception do Paul and his companions get from the brothers at Rome? Yeah, they are richly welcomed there. Um, They arrive. There's a number of, of, of of details here. And by the way, I think it's really interesting. We see Luke, the historian here. Why does he tell us about the twin gods, the figureheads of the twin gods? My translation tells us that they're Mm -hmm. Castor and Pollux. Hmm. And then names like Syracuse and Regium and Puteoli and and Appius and the three taverns. That's just a lot of proper nouns here. That's just Luke being a historian. Yeah, I mean, uh, unbelievers dismiss the Bible as a book of myths. You can't read Luke Acts and say that we've got we're dealing with myths here with the work of Luke. So he's very very careful with that. And so they arrived, and and the brothers uh, were there, greeted them, uh, welcomed them, invited them to spend some time there. And they heard they were coming, and so they went and went out to greet them. And uh, uh, so that's the church at Rome. And I think if you read, um, you know, the book of Romans, it's pretty obvious that Paul hasn't been to Rome yet. And he's sending the the epistle, the great book of Romans, in his place to take his place so they would get a sample of the teaching he would do if he could ever come there. And he said, it is my desire to come to Rome at some point. This is all in the book of Romans. So it's very clear that the book of Romans predates mm. Paul arriving physically in Rome. So it could have been like, this is the great author. This is the one who wrote Romans. We're still working it over, Paul, trying to understand it. Well, give it 20 more centuries and we're still working it over, trying to understand everything in it. But he, I'm certain, uh, the greeting from the brothers who knew about him and were glad to have him come was related to the book of Romans, which by that time, I'm certain, under the inspiration and the leadership of the Holy Spirit had been copied many times. So that's where we head toward copies of the original. Original. Uh, where was the manuscript? Who knows? Probably still existed <laughs> at that point, but you got copies. So I just think it's it's impressive um, as Paul is greeted by the church at Rome. It really is a powerful picture of the advance of the gospel, but also of the body of Christ in verses 14 and 15, the way that they are encouraged by one another, but also the the camaraderie they have, having never met one another, but having perhaps, as we just mentioned, heard from Paul and been encouraged by him and then hear Paul encouraged by them. What do we learn about the body of Christ even from these verses? That's beautiful and just the encouragement that we can and should give to each other. You know, we're in enemy territory. I mean, we're in hostile ground. Um, If you put this together with the book of Daniel, all right, what is Rome? But the fourth beast coming up out of the sea, so terrifying that we don't even know what kind of beast it is. It's not a leopard. It's not a lion. It's not a bear. It's not. It's not. It's just a terrifying beast that devours everything, crushes everything in its path. Or earlier, the the um, you know feet, uh, the legs of iron, and the feet iron clay. But you got iron, you know, compared to the earlier earlier metal metals of gold and silver and bronze, and then you got iron. It just doesn't break. It's it's there for crushing and mm. destroying. And so that's he's in the belly of the beast. He's at Rome. And yet God is at work. The gospel is at work. There is a, a colony of heaven in Rome. There's, there's a small number of believers. And I don't know if they could ever have imagined where we're heading in three centuries, mm. where the Roman emperor is going to declare himself a follower of Jesus Christ. Whether true or not, 
That just shows the progress of the gospel. The gospel is going to spiritually conquer Rome. Um, and so it's quite amazing. But to answer your question, in the middle of, in the belly of the beast, you've got this colony of heaven and, and there's this mutual encouragement. Paul says in Romans 1 that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Um, and that's exactly what's happening here. They're there to care for him and to spend time with him and to listen to his teachings. Verse 16 tells us that Paul, when he came into Rome, was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Mm-hmm. What does the fact that Paul was given his own home in Rome and allowed to live by himself with this soldier show about the way the Roman authorities viewed Paul at this point? Right. So, you know, he has a good good reputation with the centurion. The centurion listened to him during the, uh, the storm and even before they got on that final voyage, he was listening to him and respected him. And So the measure of freedom he has here is about the best scenario he could have while still being a prisoner. But he is a prisoner. He can't just go wherever he wants. So he's under what would someone call a house arrest. There is a guard there. And, uh, you know, what are the odds the guard is in heaven right now? Um, mm. You know, that Paul preached the gospel to him and, and built a relationship with him. Or maybe it was a series of guards, one after the other, and he would share with all of them. But Paul does have that freedom. And the very last section that we're going to do in the next podcast shows the benefits of that freedom, which is to have people come and go and to come visit him and uh, without any threat of being arrested. So there's some freedom there to communicate with the Jewish leaders in Rome who are not yet believers in Christ and with others so that he can do this ministry. Andy, any final thoughts for us on these verses today? Yeah, just again, the, uh, the, the hand of God, the providence of God in delivering Paul to Rome. And that's a picture of how he providentially delivers the gospel to the ends of the earth. This has been episode 49 in our Acts Bible Study podcast. We want to invite you to join us next time for our final episode, episode 50, entitled Paul's Ministry in Rome Under Guard, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 28, verses 17 through 31. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.